welcome to Obehave. I'm your host, Brian Middleton, also known as the Bearded Behaviorist. And today we have Courtney Bilton of Bilton Behavior um, joining us. We're going to be talking about um, task list items C1, C3, and C4, which are respectively establish operational definitions of behavior, measure occurrences, uh, for example, frequency, rate, and percentage, and measuring temporal dimensions of behavior, for example, duration, latency, and inter-response time. Um, this is from Task List 5 of the BACB. Welcome, Courtney. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today. It's, it's a real honor. Um, so, Courtney, uh, my understanding is, uh, well, my understanding, fingers quotes there, guys, <laughs> um, you're on uh, Instagram under Bilton Behavior, that's B-I-L-T-O-N-B-E-H-A-V-I-O-U-R, so the British way of spelling behavior, or the yeah. right way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But, yeah. Um, you guys can find me on Instagram. Yeah, I've got a... Um, an account I started to sort of disseminate ADA while I was on maternity leave, trying to find a, a creative outlet uh, for my energy while I was off work. Mm. That's, that's a good creative outlet. I love the, the okay. content you put out there. So Courtney, um, my understanding also is that you work with students um, diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and in transitioning them from intensive behavior interventions back to full-time school. Is that right? Yeah, I've been doing that for the past five years, and I've been working in autism services um, in the greater Toronto area and in Ontario, the province of Ontario in general, for over a decade. Oh, wow. That's, that's good work you're doing there. <laughs> I, yeah, I found, I found my people. I found the kiddos that I love to, to spend time with and learn from and teach, yeah. And isn't that the truth of it, though? Because, like, Every single kid I work with, I learn something new from. Mm-hmm. <sighs> All right. So let's go ahead and dive straight on in. Um, so C1, uh, uh, establishing operational definitions. Um, you want to try to break that down a little bit because that's kind of a fun, stodgy language there. Yes. So um, operational definitions. Um, defining our target behavior, creating well-written definitions for our target behaviors. Um, why do we want to spend time doing this? Because it can be quite tedious, uh, but it really is when you're practicing behavior analysis, you need to have a definition that allows you to collect useful data, right? Okay. So if we... Uh, whether we're, you know, researchers, scientists, or whether we're practitioners who are just working with people, um, we want to make sure that we have a definition of the behavior that we are targeting for increase or decrease so that we can make sure that we have effective interventions and that we're measuring what we said that we set out to measure. Okay. So... I guess a, a good way, a good place to start there is like, what counts as behavior? So I think we would like to look at, um, you know, our function-based definitions or our 
topography based definition. So what what are we when we're talking about behavior, what are we talking about topographically, which is the form or the shape of the behavior? What does it look like? Or um, what does it what does it sound like? Um, so if you're hitting someone, Mm-hmm. And you're saying our target behavior is a hit. And excuse me if I come up with lots of examples of like hitting and pushing because I've got two young kids at home that are constantly attacking each other. So these are just what I want to seven kids. I totally mind. get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I'm thinking about like if I'm thinking of a target behavior for decrease, that like a hit might be one of those things. Um, yeah. So, so what does that look like? Is it raising the hand and then bringing it, bringing it back down to make contact with an object or a person? Um, you know, is it with an open hand, like a slap, or was it with, with a closed fist, like a punch? Um, so those are sort of some of the things that I'm thinking about. What is behavior, right? Because behavior is not um, saying, oh, it's aggression. Mm well, what does, what does that mean? What is aggression? I'm, I'm not sure. That's not really clear. My, my child's just expressing anger. Mm-hmm. Mm, what's that? What's anger? So instead of using um, those kind of labels or mentalistic descriptions of, of what's going on, just really thinking about um, behavior are those things that are measurable and observable. So it sounds like by by being operational in how we define behavior that it's it's avoiding getting caught into semantic traps maybe. Yeah, I think so. I think it can be really helpful for that for sure. Um, I've worked with quite a few you know special ed kids um, where somebody would treat them differently just because they were in special ed and they could. They would do identical behaviors to a regular ed kid, but the teacher would target the special ed kid because they had the label. And, mm-hmm. and so it sounds like that, that kind of avoids the semantics trap because, um, and I guess what I mean by semantics trap is like, you know, aggression, like somebody yells because, uh, well, I'm not going to say because somebody yells, right? So I'll give an example of a, of a real case that has happened. Um, and it's unfortunately happened way too often. So I don't have to worry about identifying any individuals, but, um, a kid yells at another kid and pushes them away from them. And the teacher hears the yell and sees the yell and the kid who pushed and yelled gets in trouble. But, um, going back in time in, in a couple of cases, we actually had camera footage. We saw that the other kid first pinched, hit, poked, did something to the first kid. And so the first, the second kid is being labeled as being aggressive, but really is defending his or herself. And so the semantics argument of saying, well, aggression, it, well, there, there's appropriate times when you can be aggressive. Now, are there also levels of aggression that are appropriate? Yeah. Like, um, one of the things that I regularly taught my students was you're not supposed to take punches, get away. If you need to push the other kid away, that's perfectly okay. Just don't go throwing punches yourself. Just get out of the situation um, and get somebody who can help you. Um, and those are, those are some situations where it's, it's appropriate to, to have a little aggression because, well, the data points to uh, children with special needs being higher uh, in, in the percentage of being bullied 
and uh, being assaulted and manipulated in, in many ways, including sexually. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's so, it's so true, everything that you're saying. And I think, um, and, and part of what you're saying sort of makes me think of function-based definitions. Mm. Um, you know, when we're talking about operationally defining our target behavior, um, you know, how are these responses infecting, affecting the environment? Like we mm. want to be thinking about um, if we're talking about hitting, are we talking about um, collecting data on those hitting behaviors when the individual is swatting away a fly or playing a game of tag and they hit someone to tag them during the game? Or are we looking at um, those instances of, um, you know, no, it's, it would be when someone takes a toy away from the child and they reach out and um, hit the other child's arm, right? So sort mm -hmm. of thinking about what are, what are the effects on others and what's happening in the environment um, and how is that important when we're defining behavior? Yeah. So, um, one of the things just important to mention also, and this has been covered in previous episodes, but I feel it's important to be a little bit redundant. Um, behavior is anything that is occurring, not the absence of something occurring. Um, and behavior is anything elicited uh, or emitted by a living organism. So um, one definition I read was any muscular, glandular, or neural, neural electrical activity um, is considered behavior. So, uh, for example, if my car starts rattling, it's not behaving. It's, it's a mechanical action. Something rattled loose over time because of the mechanical action. action we can't count that as behavior, even though linguistically we like to refer to cars as as uh, living organisms and they behave in certain ways, but it's actually action and reaction. Um, and so that's, that's really important when understanding behavior because a rock falling off the side of a mountain is not behavior, but the lichen that ate the base of the rock is behavior. So the, and then gravity acting on the rock is not behavior. But again, going back to that lichen, that's a living organism and it ate away at the base of it, allowing for the um, physics-based actions to take place. So it's sometimes a little frustrating to look at, but the fun part is, is if it's, a, if it's biological and it's alive, it's behaving and it's great. It's good stuff. I like that, uh, that's good, yes. Thanks for setting <laughs> us up for, for everything else that's gonna come after. Perfect, thank you. Um, Side note, uh, if you ever get a chance to, um, fantastic article called uh, Requiem of the Dead Man Test. Oh. Um, it is uh, a couple authors who, very much tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> um, challenge the assumption of the dead man test being uh, something that we should use because we've never tested the dead man test. And it, it is very much tongue-in-cheek. There's a lot of jokes in it. Um, I'm not going to give away any of the Easter eggs except for just saying when you read it, follow the links through to the authors, especially any that have dates on them. 
because they are totally worth your time. Um, but we 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 like to make some assumptions, and and so the dead man test is a is a test that was coined in behavior analysis, and um, has since been used by more than behavior analysis. I believe cognitive behavioral therapy and neuropsychology, neuropsychology and evolutionary psych, um, amongst just a few others, utilize the dead man test. But the concept is, if a dead man can do it, it's not behavior. Uh-huh. Um, and technically, that's true. I prefer to use instead the dummy test, like, you know, a mannequin, um, because that's a little bit easier to to not have the the, the little gray areas because technically decomposing is a natural biological process that is oh look at you getting all specific yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. but, but then again that i'm the sort of person who looks up requiem of a dead man test and, <laughs> and reads that article because he thinks it's really funny so there you go a little dark humor for you I'll add it to my list. Thank you. <laughs> no problem. I, sh- I should probably try posting a link to it in the, uh, in the uh, podcast uh, listing. Okay, great. All right. So we're, uh, we've got our operational definitions idea kind of sussed out there. Um, mm-hmm. The important thing is, if, if from what you're saying, if I'm re- recalling correctly, is that we define it in such a way that anybody can read the definition and then they can see the behavior themselves. So important. That's so important. If you, especially, um, I do a lot of work with parents. I do a lot of work with educators. Um, and so they're not behavior analysts. Mm. So when I'm creating definitions, am I creating them so that a person who has no background in ABA, can they read it and know exactly what to look for? Um, so that they can be collecting data if they need to, or just so that they can just be aware of what's happening. Um, because how are we supposed to know um, if the interventions that we're delivering are effective, if we can't track mm-hmm. the behavior to see if it's improving or not? So yeah, so exactly. It's, it's so important to have a clear definition that anyone who does not, is not aware of the individual Mm-hmm. could just walk in and say, yep, that was clear, that was simple, that was easy to understand. I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's when I write behavior definitions and when I was a special ed teacher, when I wrote IEPs, um, individualized education plans, for those who don't know what that is, um, my goal was to write the definitions and write everything in such a way that if I got in a car accident and died that day, somebody could look at the definition and without having to seek anybody out, be able to identify what they're looking for. And I know that again, a little morbid there, but like things happen and we want yeah. to make sure that we're, we're doing, doing right by the people that we serve. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we know, yeah, in order for our interventions to be implemented consistently, to be implemented accurately in timely fashions, um, those working with us and, and with the clients aren't going to be able to apply those procedures um, mm-hmm. effectively without clear operational definitions of target behaviors. Yeah. Okay, so now we've clearly defined a target behavior. Let's say the behavior is um, scratching, which is 
taking one uh, body part and rubbing it aggressively against the other, uh, let's say um, three to four motions over a one second period over the top of the other, um, typically with fingernails, but not necessarily exclusively with fingernails. Um, would you say that's a good operational definition of scratching? Yeah, so I like that finger, fingernails to skin, um, three or four movements um, over the skin within a second. Um, I think um, also some some non examples of what that might be. So so when are you um, when are you counting this? You know when are we when do we want to be tracking this? Is that when the kid has um, just finished a weekend camping and they've got mosquito bites mm. um, or is it, um, you know, it's uh, or is it like a more of a self injurious behavior that we're looking at? Um, is it scratching others? So is, we're not focusing on scratching the self. We're focusing on, on scratching others. Um, or is scratch like is scratching scratching the wall like is it property destruction and oh. are they scratching paint off of um, off of um, property right so mm -hmm. well, these are what? yeah these are all the questions that I have right <laughs> and that's good I was intentionally vague because I was wondering where you'd go with it and you I know I know right <laughs> you you followed I could all see the you planting a little like it to you like is she actually Actually, a behavior analyst. Yeah. I promise I wasn't testing you. <laughs> but yeah, those, so those are all the really important questions that we have to ask because um, like, what's the setting? What's the situation going on? Like where, where um, well, WTF, what's the function? Um, and that's a, that's a big part of that. But also um, when we're defining a behavior for targeting, uh, what's the social significance? is it okay for a kid who's come back from camping to scratch a mosquito bite? Like, let's say that we have a kid who has a problem with, with um, perseveration on scratching and causing self-injurious behaviors. And then they come back from a camping trip. You know, is, are, is this individual, even though they have that, that history of self-injury, are they allowed to be able to scratch a mosquito bite? Um, the answer should be yes. Uh, course part of that is also functional communication training we want to train them to be able to say hey this itches can I get some help with this and then we get a lotion for it like a calamine lotion or some other anti-itch cream but you know like sometimes you're occupied doing your thing like I do it all the time um, when I go camping I come back and I'm trying to take care of something else that I'm just really focused on and I scratch and then you know a few days later it turns into a scab and I'm like oh I should have gotten some cream you know or is the individual allowed to be able to have that sort of experience for themselves or not? And I guess the, the real question happens, like, does it ultimately result in greater harm or is it something that they can learn for themselves? And great considerations. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kind of lean towards letting, letting people learn for themselves for the most part and really only intervening when it's a serious threat of harm. To themselves or others. I agree. I agree. And I think, um, especially as a parent, I can say a huge component for that for me is um, 
is me automatically expecting the worst or thinking the worst. Well, if I let them do this, it's automatically going to snowball into mm. this huge, you know, have to nip it in the bud now before it, um, before it turns into something completely unmanageable. And, and really that kind of catastrophic thinking is not helpful as a parent. Cause it, it most, it most likely isn't. I mean, when we have our kiddos with, um, additional diagnoses, then yeah, maybe there are some, there's some, a moment to pause and think about um, what, what extra concerns we might have about challenging behavior, Mm -hmm. quickly becoming deeply rooted or being really difficult to, to reverse. Um, But I agree with you. I think give, give the individual some space and the benefit of the doubt and the opportunity to, to learn. And, um, and then hopefully if things if you do need to have an intervention, then hopefully you have the support in place around you available um, to help solve those challenges as they come up. Exactly. Okay, so moving on to measuring occurrences. Um, so here's some, here some fun words for you all. Frequency rate percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Let's start with frequency and rate because this is this has got a fun little little debate in the behavior analysis community. Frequency and yes, rate. <laughs> yes. So I was going to ask you. Um, I'll tell you um, how I think of it, and you can let me know if you like that or if you think I'm way off base. Um, but when I think about, all right, so we've got. Um, count and tally so we've got our number of occurrences of behavior Mm -hmm. and then we are going to take those um, instances and convert them to rate or frequency when we have the time period in which they occurred Mm -hmm. so um, I'm giving I've given my student a math worksheet Um, I've counted um, three correct questions and one incorrect question so I've got my count I've got my tally I've got my number of occurrences of mm-hmm. math questions that were completed um, that's four that were completed and I know the period of time in which my student completed those four questions and that took them 20 minutes um, so it's four questions in 20 minutes so I could say that's approximately one question every five minutes mm-hmm. so when I'm thinking about rate I'm thinking about that um, the number of instances that a behavior occurred in a period of time, like once per minute, once per second, once per hour. Or once per every five minutes. Yeah. And when I'm thinking of frequency, I'm thinking more of like um, it, it happened, you know, four times during the math period. So it's like a period of time, um, but it's not like a time segment of like per second, per minute, per hour. It's like it happened in this, like it happens once a month or it happens about once a day or um, it happens every, every math period. Um, How do you, what do you, when you think about rate versus frequency, how do you distinguish the two? So rate is really frequency with specific time defined. Yeah. To me. And that's, that's where I, where I go with it. So, um, the reality is, is that frequency is still time-based because we can't observe all the time. And so we're, we're still time-bound or uh, temporal locus-bound, if you want to use the really 
fun language that we like to use, but we're, we're, we're bound by timeframes because that's just the way reality works. We, we can't continuously observe somebody and really we shouldn't, that's kind of an invasion of privacy um, situation there. Um, but so frequency is, is just the number of times we've counted something and we're less concerned about the hard numbers of times. And, and rate is more like this happens so many times in this person, particular time frame. Um, and a lot of times when we think kilometers per hour or miles per hour, that sort of thing, or feet, feet per second, that's when we're talking um, scientific observable data in physics and, and, and that sort of thing, that's usually when rate comes up outside of behavior analysis, but inside of re-behavior analysis, that's important data too, because let's say that um, the student over a, um, so we're doing a, let's say a, a moment, momentary time sampling, um, which is one of the main ways that I measured behavior as a special ed teacher, because I had to be all over a single building serving 20 plus kids, and I only had little snippets of time. So typically what I do is, is I'd, I'd measure rate of when a behavior occurred, let's say shouting out during class, um, which is, you know, blurting out or saying something without receiving a um, verbal or nonverbal indicator that they could speak. Um, and when it was during instruction time. So shouting out during class does not count when it's social time, when you can just chit chat with each other, that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, that was, that was a pretty common behavior that, that teachers had challenges with. And um, so I go in and I, take data for 15 minutes and I'd have a little interval timer in my pocket on my phone that would vibrate, no, no beep. So that way I knew it was time to look up and take the data. And while I was not looking up, I was working on something else so that they, that way we didn't have some reactivity. The kids didn't be change their behavior. Um, and sometimes I just go into the classrooms and sit just to make it so they didn't have that problem. <laughs> but, um, so then, you know, if, if uh, it's over a 15 minute period, there are 62 times or instances that um, I recorded the shouting out behavior. Oh, that's kind of a challenge. You know, I could understand why the teacher would be a little bit frustrated. But if instead it was that situation we talked about earlier where um, the teacher is responding to the kid based off of the fact that they have a, um, a label on them or they're in special ed. Um, then, you know, if, it, if the instances of shouting out was three and I observed peers who are not labeled as special ed having five to six, mm -hmm. then I have some hard data that I can take to the teacher and say, well, this really isn't that big of a problem. I think it may be the way that you're seeing the kid. Um, yeah, so, you're yeah. saying so many valuable things, right? Yeah. Um, what, you know some data can be so overwhelming for a lot of people and really boring, you know, talking about rate and frequency and percentage and mm -hmm. people are just like, Ugh. but it's exactly what you said. We've got to track it before we even start mm -hmm. because we have to be able to compare what's happening pre-intervention and post-intervention. We have to know before we even start, do, do we even intervene? Like you said, is this even, is this even an issue or not? Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, how can, how do we know that once we start to intervene, 
if it's being effective or not. Do we need to discontinue our procedures or modify them? Or, you know, potentially our um, stakeholders no longer interested in participating in the intervention. But look, we've got the data to say, like, I, I know this is tough for you, but this is working. Um, yeah, it just, it helps us to deliver effective and ethical services. So data collection is so important. So yes, knowing how to record rate or frequency and when it's important to be using those, um, those measures. And then that leads us into percentage, which that usually is measured one of two ways, percentage of correct or percentage of incorrect. And that's, that's basically the opportunities for responding over, uh, sorry, no, the number of responses over the opportunities of responding uh, yep. divided. So let's say you had 10 opportunities to respond and you responded three times, so three over 10. Uh, so you divide that and then you multiply it by 100 to create a percentage. So yeah. that would be three out of 10 would be 30%. Yeah. Um, I intentionally picked easy numbers because math and me... <laughs> <laughs> but um so yeah those that percentage is is a useful tool but sometimes people get a little bit scared when they see a percentage um especially if the percentage is not well defined because um there's been more than one instance where i've looked at a report and and says you know the percent was this and i'm, I'm like percent of what yeah right yeah. so you know the percent of the percent was this <laughs> yeah let's try not to do that yeah okay so then we have um measuring temporal dimensions of behavior so for those of you folks who are not very familiar with temporal um that means time uh so temporal dimensions meaning what are what are the time-based components of behavior mm -hmm. and um, the is turning on okay that's fun that just, that just scared me a little bit. Ooh, ghost printing. Yep. Um, yeah, I love, um, I love duration, like the amount of time during which a behavior is occurring. Um, I find that a really useful uh, measurement tool that I use often, you know, um, how long is the individual engaging in the behavior for? Like, how long are they mm -hmm. crying for? Or, you know, how many seconds, how many minutes? Or how long are they sitting and attending for? Um, so, yeah, get your, get your timers out and start your stopwatch. And, and you've got your, we've already talked about having our clear, definitions of target behavior so you know exactly what you're looking for you know when to start and stop that timer and get that get that measure yeah well and, and duration well rather temporal dimensions is really important because it, it can tell us a lot of information and measuring occurrences or you know when the behavior occurs it, it, it's great for something that happens occasionally but if it's something that's happening like back to back or really fast then you really want to measure duration, you know, how long in time the behavior has occurred. Because like, for example, crying, you could measure each tear that falls from their eye <laughs> or each time that they emit a sob, you know, something like that. 
but that's gonna one that's that's a little heartless but two (laughs) is that the most useful piece of information that you need is yeah is it how many sobs or is it the duration of the sobbing right yeah and you know Um, and 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 is it is is the issue that you know oh i i could tell you um my one-year-old the issue is that every single time something doesn't go her way she cries and like Mm -hmm. it only lasts like a few seconds but it's every single time I say no or Mm -hmm. say wait there's an episode of crying whereas with my three-year-old um it's not it's not the frequency of the crying it's the duration it doesn't happen very often but when it happens it's it's taken us 20-30 minutes to calm him down so um so yeah what's what is it important about the behavior that you're looking at is it how many times it's happening or is it how long it's lasting and just for you folks who are not familiar with like behavior analysis and, and maybe like, Oh my God, why are you talking about this stuff the way this way? Like a kid's crying. Why aren't you there comforting the kid? Um, that, that is a component to this. We're just talking strictly about the measurement aspect of it. Um, but for example, a client that, that I worked with had some serious self-injury and aggression issues. Um, she was, um, or is nonverbal, although, you know, we're using um, different functional communication methods to help her. And um, when we first started instances of aggression and uh, towards others, so hitting uh, with closed fist, scratching, biting, um, pulling hair, those sorts of things, um, the duration or the time that it lasted would be for an hour or more. Mm-hmm. And and knowing that information is important because now, as of the last time that we had, so the frequency <laughs> that um, the those those sorts of aggression behaviors have dropped drastically. It went from so time bound here. Let's look at it from a week perspective. It went from five to ten times a week. Like mm-hmm. it, it depended on the week, but it, so if we're going to average that out, let's say seven, seven times a week, it would be what it was. Um, and it, so it, it's dropped down to once a month, maybe. So that's a big change right there for, for frequency, but also duration, the duration of the last major instance that we had a, 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 a situation of aggression was three minutes hmm. from an hour and a half. So like, that's a big difference. And if we hadn't had that data, then, you know, when that behavior would have occurred, then we would have been like, Oh, I'm so frustrated. This is a frustrating situation. And that's actually what happened with one of the parents. They're like, we're so frustrated. I thought we were making progress. And I said, thank you for saying that and telling that to me. And I pulled up the data and I showed them and I showed them the graphs and how the major change had happened. And sometimes we have to have those permanent products that, that yeah. data to remind us that yes, these hard things happen and big emotions happen and, and that sort of thing, but like huge change has taken place and that's good. Um, yeah. And, and part of that huge change was that yes, while we're measuring this particular data point, um, that data point doesn't necessarily tell us everything else that we're doing because we exactly. were teaching functional communication skills. We we're teaching, um, how to manage those big emotions when they happen, how to advocate for herself, how to, um, you know, 
maybe compromise because those are all necessary skills to operate in this world. Like we can't get everything we want all the time. Yeah. So there you go. A little bit about duration and and it it applied. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I find so useful is is those real life examples of application because these definitions just don't, they don't resonate with me until, yeah, I've, I've lived through it or worked through it. Mm. That was a good one. Thank you. So latency, that's a fun word. Does Mm -hmm. that mean somebody is late? Um, (laughs) So, uh, so here's another, um, we're measuring time, the time between um, our stimulus and the subsequent response. So um, you've got your signal, let's Mm -hmm. say, clean your toys. And then you've got the time between that and when the behavior of cleaning the toys begins. And that's your response latency. Okay. Um, so yeah. So when I think of, when I think of that, yeah, it's usually those kind of, all right, time to come to dinner, wash your hands. And how long does it take my kid to actually get up and start walking to the washroom to wash his hands? Well, an example of this would be, uh, I'm going to give an unusual example. Latency, yeah, uh, latency of response uh, of responding for saying hello. So, <laughs> kiddo, I'd work with. You'd say hell, and they go hello. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's really <laughs> and, and, and it was, really it was short. Too fast uh, because yeah. the other person didn't even get a chance to finish the. the <laughs> they're saying hello. <laughs> the other person would respond too quickly and. Uh, and part of that challenge was that this person, um, this individual would talk over uh, other people. So um, we wanted to increase the latency mm-hmm. to let the other person finish talking because um, rightfully so, people were getting irritated because it's like, can I finish my thought, please? <laughs> and um, so we wanted to increase the latency in that case. And a lot of times when people think latency, they want to decrease latency. So yeah. You know, you say hello, and the person stares at you yeah. for an uncomfortable <laughs> three or four seconds, and then says uh-huh. hello, which yeah. actually is or one like of my, my f- husband. My husband, I'm like, could you please pass me the salt? Hello, like, could you please pick it up and pass it to me now? Yeah, yeah, it'd be great if you could decrease that that response latency, yeah. or, or at least acknowledge that you heard me, yeah. so that way <laughs> yeah. I know that you're you you. <laughs> You, you caught on that the salt needs to yeah. be coming over this way, yeah. please. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually, yeah, but I love f- that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, but I, but I love that you provided a, an example of the flip side of, of when we need to delay it or stretch it out. That was good. Yeah. It, it's an unusual one. I was very surprised when I came across it and I was like, Oh, how can I apply this? So, mm-hmm. um, I actually have fun with kids. Um, Comedy is an important thing um, for for everybody. I think it's it's a it's a very valuable tool. It helps with pairing. It helps with um, dealing with the challenges of life. And um, so one of the things that that I do with my students, and I obviously base it off of their knowledge set, um, but sometimes I'll poke my head around a corner and just stare at the kid, <laughs> <laughs> and they're staring back at me, and I'm like. And I wait a few seconds. I'm like, hi. 
and they're like, hi. And then we both laugh, start laughing, that sort of thing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a fun way of demonstrating the importance of latency harmlessly because yeah. they know that I'm joking. Um, yeah. And in fact, I've, I've, I, I never do it out of the blue to a kid. I let them see me do it with other people first. So that way they can see that it's, it's, all, it's all in fun. It's nothing threatening. Yeah. And uh, interestingly, comedy teaches a lot. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Here, okay. here. <laughs> so inter-response time. That's a fun mm-hmm. one and a mouthful. Yeah. Yes. Um, so the time between two consecutive instances of a response class. So, um, so what's a good example of this? Um, like just the, how long is the break in between two instances of a behavior? Okay. Um, so if you're looking at, like if we're, if we're talking about um, self-injurious behavior or crying, and it's sort of like you finish one instance of crying mm-hmm. and then the child gets back to work or does whatever and then how long do they go before they start crying again okay and functions, good, i'm sure you have good examples of that too yeah yeah well functions of behavior are, are a good way of looking at this because it again we're breaking it into smaller components so like it's it sounds a little bit harsh when you're saying something like crying but if we look at it from from the full suite of how we're responding. So we identify the function of the behavior for the crying as attention. And so we're seeing how long between the first episode of crying and the second episode of crying. Um, and if we identify the function of the behavior as attention and we, and so we get some good baseline on this because without baseline, it's just an opinion. Um, and so we get a good baseline and we find out that the inter-response time for crying is about five minutes. So this informs our intervention because what we do is we say, if it's consistently within four minutes and 45 seconds and five minutes and 15 seconds that the crying occurs, then at four minutes, 30 seconds, we wanna provide attention to the student so that we're providing attention and reinforcing other behaviors, behaviors that are not crying, because crying can get in the way of, of being successful, if, especially if the duration of the crying is, is a long time. Um, crying too much can, can cause all sorts of, of bad effects on the bodies. It, it releases um, some hormones that are very beneficial for dealing with stress, but if you have those hormones being released all the time, it's gonna put a, a strain on your, your organs and your tissues, and it's, gonna, it's, it's just not fun. Um, and then, of course, we look at things like depression, because if, if we cry too, like crying's good. Don't, this is me not saying don't have a good cry. It's good for you. Do it. Uh, watch, a, watch a good soppy movie and, and have a good cry, right? Um, if you want a really good, like, happy cry, watch the movie uh, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Man, that, that really te- jerks tears out of me in a happy way. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, like, if it's too frequently, then that, that can cause harm to the individual and we want to help them. Um, and so we reinforce for attention because the function of the behavior is attention. And then we're also shifting the paradigm because look at this as a relationship thing, right? Um, the relationship before was the only way that we could get attention was by crying. Now 
the way that we can get attention is by checking on the person that we care about. And what we eventually want to do is the inter-response time, we want to increase it. We want to be able to make it so that maybe the person can tolerate more time without attention before um, they, they need to do it. And while we're at it, um, we're also teaching functional communication skills, like how to gain attention from others in a, in a pro-social way that's not hurting yourself. Um, so it's, it's not just one thing that we're doing, but they're all focused on how are we trying to help the individual to um, be more successful. Um, yeah. and, and actually, I'd like to, if you don't mind, bring up a, a non autism uh, support services example of inner response time and how we can help people. Yeah. Inner response time between working out. Mm. Like the, the research is clear that we need to be working out, you know, and moving around consistently at a certain exertion level, um, three to five times a week, depending on the exertion level. Um, and, you know, in all of the Western world, but especially the United States, um, because of our dietary challenges, uh, <laughs> that's a big issue. And um, it's something that I've been thinking a lot about because as of this moment in time, I'm seeing a personal trainer and he loves us because my <laughs> wife and I are both behavior analysts and we're like, show us the data. <laughs> like, <laughs> We want the baseline data. He's like over here explaining what he's doing when our, at our first meeting and all the stuff he's measuring. And we're like, oh, no, we get it. You're a scientist, too. I, I've multiple times said to him, you're a behavior analyst. You're the most behavior analyst, the behavior analytic, behavior, non-behavior analyst I've ever met. And mm -hmm. <laughs> um, But like, what are some ways that we can decrease the inner response time with increasing our physical activity? Um, or maybe we talk about inner response time. Maybe somebody is concerned about um, smoking. That's a really big challenge for a lot yeah. of folks. They start it because there's a social contingencies going on. And um, a lot of my friends who are in the military were like the old smokers get a smoke break, but non-smokers have to keep working. So there was an escape maintained function. And then you have the social aspect added onto that. And then you also have the addictive component to it uh, when it comes to the chemical operating on your system. Well, um, most people can't quit cold turkey. Um, so how can we increase the inter-response time between smoking? Because I have yeah. a few friends who are trying to stop and, my, and, and they beat themselves up. They go into the spiral of, dang it, I had another coffin nail. And they call it that too. And, and my response is like, yes, but how long between? And they're like, what? So I start getting them to track it and mark on the calendar what time, when. And one of my friends, um, he is seeing a big change over time now that he's been keeping track of this data. And before, you know, it was a week. Um, once a week, he would smoke. And so now that he's aware of the data, he's starting to increase it. And last time I talked with them, it was two and a half months. Nice. And yeah. it, as far as I know, he's still going strong. But if it turns out that he had another coffin nail uh, and he talks to me about it and this gets down on himself, I'm like, no, look at the amount of time that yeah. you're in between. Like, focus on the actual hard data because this is where real behavior change happens. Yes. yes. And these are such great examples. I, like, thanks so much for 
spelling it out because yeah when it don't like I said it only means so much when we just talk about the definition of what inter-response time is but when you tie it back into okay and so how does this help inform our intervention exactly and and what is the benefit of how of collecting this information how how is this helping us improve our quality of life yeah yeah so important well and you know um again the, the biggest area that uh, applied behavior analysis and, and radical behaviorism serves people is autism services uh, specifically autism spectrum disorder to services but um we really need to start applying this in other ways um, because we could look at inter-response time for recycling um, and, and improving our planet. We could uh, look at um, the duration that we spend learning versus uh, watching, le sorry, learning, learning versus leisure activities. Um, and I'm not saying that we necessarily have to increase the learning and decrease the leisure activities i'm saying like this this information can help us um, mm -hmm. with analyzing other things we could look at the the frequency that we um focus on negative and and destructive things versus the frequency that we focus on creativity and those sorts of components and in fact um one of the things that that my center i work for focuses on as we teach our, our students um, acceptance and commitment therapy slash training concepts, which is a branch of, of um, behavior experimental analysis. Um, and it, it works with cognitive behavioral therapy um, on that. And we don't do the therapeutic side, we do the training side. But we can take hard data on when we're doing those things. And we can teach our, our students how to, oh, I'm keeping track of the number of times that I'm getting stuck on, on something that's happened in the past or the future that worrying about something that might happen in the future. I can track the number of times that I'm um, getting down on myself and saying these things. And then I can also track the number of times that I can be present in the moment and be mindful to get out of being stuck. Um, yeah. And I can track, I can track how I'm feeling. And yes, it's a self-report thing. And a lot of times there's some misconceptions um, that radical behaviorism or applied behavior analysis doesn't think of thoughts, feelings, emotions, and memories are behaviors. And that's kind of fun and frustrating because that's confusing Watson with Skinner. Um, mm -hmm. The methodological behaviorists were the ones who said that those weren't behavior. And uh, I've read more than one article where there, someone's been pointing out the problems with behaviorism and I'm like, methodological behaviorism, be more specific, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that is a point of contention with me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I, I went off on a little tangent there. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love it. Basically what I'm hoping the take home message is for all of your listeners is um, get those definitions of target behaviors that are um, well-written, that are objective, observable, um, clear, easy to understand, and then use that to, to get your data collected um, so that you can provide effective and ethical 
interventions and that you can you can be accountable to those people that you're serving and and you know that the work that you're doing is evidence-based yeah if you don't mind courtney i want to quickly touch on c2 of the task list the distinguishing among yeah. direct indirect and product measures um okay so what, what all the things that we were just talking about those are direct measures that's where we're directly observing we're seeing what's happening there's there's no question um we're we're taking the data in the moment type thing um, a lot of times um, other branches of psychology or uh, behavioral approaches use a lot of indirect measures that self-reports that's um you know, asking the parent what, what typically occurs. So for example, an indirect measure that I used a lot as a special ed teacher um, was the Basque and GARS, um, which are two different measures for screening for autism spectrum disorder. Um, and those are all based off of, you know, opinions and, and what people think um, or what they recall, that sort of thing. And then the last one is product measures, um, which is permanent products. So like, you mentioned earlier math assignment, right? Um, that's typically on a piece of paper or it's on a computer screen. The student is typing or writing something and that is a, a product of a behavior, a permanent product. Um, yeah. And I actually talked about a permanent product of behavior with lichen, <laughs> eating, away <laughs> at, eating away at a boulder. <laughs> and <laughs> like that's a permanent product of the, of, of the lichen having been there is uh -huh. that breakdown. Um, and, uh, one of my favorite thought exercises is, um, is water flowing over a dam a behavior? And the answer is definitely not like that's a, that's a, uh, operation of physics and gravity. Um, mm -hmm. but the dam being present could be a behavior depending on whether it's a dam that was created by, or not, could not be a behavior. It could be a permanent product of a behavior. Right because it was, if it was built by a uh, beaver family or if it was created by humans, mm -hmm. um, the uh, process of that beaver dam being more effective because of the algae that grows in it, there could be behaviors actually occurring inside of it, that sort of thing. Um, but understanding that uh, a product of behavior can help us measure behavior as well. Yes, yes. So, whew. We, we covered some, some hard ones. <laughs> yeah, we covered some good ground. And hopefully, um, I loved your example, so hopefully everyone else listening does too. Thank you. I like, I like trying to think of diagonal ways of understanding things because then it increases understanding. Yes. Multiple exemplars. Yeah. Okay, so um, I think that covers everything. Um, again, folks, uh, this Courtney built, sorry, words, I'm gonna do this right. Courtney Bilton of Bilton Behavior has joined us today and um, please follow her on Instagram. Um, so that would be at Bilton Behavior with a um, I-O-U-R at the end um, on Instagram. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're pretty busy and you got your munchkins. Um, Thanks, hope Brian. Hope to have was, you on in the future. It was an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed doing all the hashtag behavior nerds, um, 
posts with you on Instagram and collaborating. So it was nice to get to, to chat with you face to face here about um, some ABA stuff. Yeah. Okay, folks. Well, um, just remember that uh, Obehave is an open source education resource, meaning that all aspects of this podcast can be cut, used, reused, applied in multiple ways towards being, improving behavior analysis education. Um, the only request that we have is that you cite back to the original sources, uh, in this case, referencing Obehave. Um, we really appreciate you joining us and we look forward to having you join us for our next episode. Bye.